If you're ready to take action to create the life and business you want and be surrounded by courageous, like-minded warriors, entrepreneurs, creatives, and professional freelancers supporting each other and feeling the fear and doing it anyway, I invite you to join my free online community, Momentum Warriors. Just head over to www.momentumwarriors.com now. You're listening to Transitions Podcast. Learn how to make money doing what you love, become more confident, create a positive impact, and have the lifestyle that you want with marketing consultant and small business advisor, Anthony Chansamuth. Welcome, Warriors, to episode 006 of Transitions Podcast. This is Anthony Chansamuth, and I'm glad to have you back. Uh, today, I've got a special guest with me. It's actually a recording I did a while ago, uh, but certainly this is the time to talk about this topic, and I know it's a hot one. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to Andrew Simonette, who founded Artists you in 2006 in the US. Uh, From 1993 to 2013, Andrew was a founding co-director and choreographer of Philadelphia's Headlong Dance Theatre. He's also the author of Making Your Life as an Artist, which is the focus of this particular episode. So if you're a creative and an artist trying to work out how to make a living doing what you love and how to access your creativity and turn that into something that sustains you, this is for you. And let me give you a bit of a background about Andrew. He's a community artist and activist from Philadelphia in the USA. His performance has challenged the boundaries of urban experience. Cell, Cell was the name of the piece, uh, was a risk-taking journey through the city for one audience member at a time guided by his cell phone. In This Town is a Mystery, Andrew created performances with four Philadelphia geographically and culturally diverse households. Audience members traveled to their homes watching the household perform and then shared a potluck dinner. That's a really cool idea. Andrew founded Artists U in 2006, a grassroots empowerment program for artists in Philadelphia, Baltimore, and South Carolina. And Andrew's book, Making Your Life as an Artist, has been downloaded by more than 60,000 artists in the first two months of release. So I wanted to welcome Andrew. Um, Hey, thank you for joining the show. (laughs) <laughs> cool. So um, we just established that uh, I'm in Sydney, so Andrew's in the States. I would have liked to have done this in person, but uh, it didn't work out, so that's okay. So Andrew, I guess let's start with really, you know, what I wanted to explore with you is really the journey of the creative mind and the creative artist and building a sustainable career, because that's, that's the whole basis of the book, which I've read and I think, you know, uh, it's just incredible and there's a lot of insight there and I think um, practical, you know, advice that artists can take away because I, I I do a lot of work with creative people. I am one myself and I've been through that challenge. I've been through that struggle, right? And so let's, I guess let's start with your foundation or, or where you came from. Like, you, did you grow up in Philadelphia? Did you go to school there? Uh, what was, you know, what did you do when you were in school? What did you study? Uh, I grew up out north of Philadelphia in a little town called Yardley, PA. And I grew up doing, I did a lot of theater when I was a kid, but then I sort of drifted away from it. And then I, I went to college and I um, discovered dance. And I, suddenly I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is like theater, but it has, a, it's, it's so physical and it's so grounded in the body in the present moment. It's not like you're not pretending to be someone you aren't. So that kind of changed my life. And I didn't actually, before then, I didn't think that was what I was going to do. I think more interested in writing and certain kinds of activism. And then I discovered dance and I was like, oh, this is, this is what I want to devote my life to. So I moved here to Philadelphia with um, two other artists and we started a dance company 20 years ago, 22 years ago now. Um, and I ran that together with them, a collaborative company called Headlong Dance Theater. We did that for 20 years. And then last year, beginning of last year, I left to sort of work independently and pursue some other projects, including this book, some other writing projects and a, um, a social justice documentary film that I'm putting together. So that's kind of, yeah, that's sort of my, that's the quick journey. Oh, okay. Thanks for sharing. So was there any stage, I guess, um, when you were growing up, were your parents artists? Was that part of the, 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 the drive for you to get into theater? No, no. And, and um, there's a lot of jokes in my family that I'm sort of the only 
artist. We have people that do all kinds of things in my extended family, but I'm the only person doing art stuff. <laughs> and in some ways, I think you know, I'm a, I'm a funny bit, or I don't know. I'm not I'm not one of those people who, from the day I was born, was like I'm going to be an artist. And I know a lot of artists like that. It really, just it's written on their soul in a way. For me, it was it was a process of discovery. And part of what I loved about dance and choreography actually was how uh, how hard it is, how incredibly hard and complicated it is. It's not something that comes easily. Cool. Well, let's, let's talk about that because you mentioned, I, I was reading in the book and you talk about how creative people are not strangers to hard work. You sort of, one of the things you say is that it's, uh, it's actually the opposite, that, that we work too hard um, and, and that can, you know, create problems, right? So yeah, what's your, what's your take on that and how can creative people or anyone listening to this, whether they're, they're in a creative space or not, what can they learn from that experience? But I think in general, in the sort of the wealthier parts of the world, like Australia and America, I think there's there's more and more there's a culture of workaholism and working all the time, and that that's become the way people really self-identify. And sadly, I think artists have kind of led the charge on that. Like I think we're we're more workaholic than anyone. And part of that is the circumstances we function in, which is that a lot of us. There are certain ways we have certain things we do to earn our living. And then there is this, the deep work we do, the work that we really care about. So there's all, it feels like there's always more to do than there is time. But I also think for a lot of artists, we have this thing of like, oh, I'm doing 26 things. Maybe if I did 27 things, everything would work out great, right? Like if I just throw some more things on my plate, <laughs> maybe it's that 28th thing that's going to make the difference. And I'm going to suddenly make it and be famous. And I think the opposite is true. I, I do think the one conclusive thing, I can't say a lot of conclusive things about artists because we're a very diverse bunch, but um, I really can conclusively say that I've seen artists who do a small number of things really thoroughly go a lot further than people who do tons of things. And a lot of that is, is prioritizing and saying no and taking things off your plate and kind of figuring out most important work and the work that no one's going to make you do is your own artwork, right? No one's going to bother you about that or pester you about that or say, hey, next Tuesday, can you come and do your artwork? I do think that's the thing we have to, we have to make time for. We have to prioritize. And I think saying no is something artists are just not good at. Here, like, what if this is the last thing I'm ever going to have be offered? What if this is my last opportunity? <laughs> I can't say no, but it's not. It's not your last opportunity. And I just think, I think saying no is really like saying yes to your work. When you say no to a bunch of stuff that's going to take you away from your work, you're saying yes to the most important thing to do. I really like that. And I think that's, that's really, really powerful. And that's something that, that I've certainly practiced more of, I guess, in the last few years. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is that thing. So what is it that, that drives people? drives us to say to say yes to so many things and you talked about there's a i guess at a deeper level there there is is it a, is it a, a self-worth thing or is it more around you know is it a mindset is it a belief what is it that that you know we feel like we need to be uh, like opportunities are scarce because you're saying what you're saying is actually no there will be more opportunities right so so how do you marry that with i guess the other side of it, which is, okay, well, I do have things to pay. You know, I've got bills. I've got things that I've got to take care of certain things. If I have family or, or, or you know, education, whatever it is, how have you learned to deal with that? And I guess in your own story, in your own life, when did, did it click in your mind, hey, I need to, to, shape, to shift this because it's not working? Yeah, I, it's absolutely something that I've always struggled with, which is saying doing too much, doing too much all the time. And I have to constantly remind myself. And part of why, I mean, part of why I wrote that book was this is the stuff I need to hear. <laughs> this is the stuff I need to be told. <laughs> and somehow writing it down puts it in my brain. But I, I think through experience, I just think, you know, running this dance company with my collaborators for so long, there were real moments of burnout. There were real moments that were just like, oh, too, we are doing way too much. And we're, we're suffering. Our, our artistic work is suffering. So we, we reflected that for each other. I mean, having collaborators was really helpful. I think artists who have a solo practice, it's especially challenging because there's no one there to say, hey, you're exhausted and stressed out. Go home. You're done. You know, like no one's going to draw that boundary. <laughs> you have to draw it for yourself. I think another pressure that happens with artists is we're really connected to our communities, communities of artists and our the communities we live in. 
and people come to us and they say, hey, can you come, you know, teach this kid's workshop? Oh, can you donate some work to that thing? Oh, would you mind helping put together this festival? Like there's all of this barter and collaboration and cooperation that helps the art world, cultural sector function. But sometimes that just becomes a way to, I love that, (laughs) but sometimes that does suck everybody dry. And it's a little bit like we're all, um, we're all running around exhausting each other in the name of something that we're not even really getting to get to, you know, we're keeping ourselves and each other away from it. So part of the thing I think you have to say no to is all the people who call you up, not the big paying gigs or the thing that's going to make you a lot of money. That's probably a good idea to say yes to it. You can figure it out, but, but it's the, you know, Hey, could you come help with this show? Would you mind coming to some rehearsals for this thing? Like all of that kind of cooperative community stuff. And again, it's great, but if it's taking you out away from your studio, then it's not helping. And that's a, that's a piece that I always struggle with because there's there's such a wonderful community here of artists and performing artists. There's always more to do, always more volunteering to do. Yeah, there's, there's certainly no end or limit to the amount of work there is, right? That, that, that's, that's, you know, whether you're working in a corporation or you're working for yourself or you're an artist or you're in a studio, I think that that's a given. <laughs> Uh, I, I just wonder, is there, I mean, I certainly, there are situations, there's a difference between creating, and you've sort of highlighted that now, is there's, there's a difference between creating work which is driven, driven from within, and, and that's, that's you know, your work, uh, as you say, and, you know, work which is from the outside, which, you know, it, it may appear to you as, yeah, you know, it's going to, I think there's a belief, and, and it may be true or not, that, you know, if I, if I give, and I give, and I give, um, you know, to my communities, to my sponsors, to, to, you know, to the gallery, to whatever it is, then, you know, that's going to be reciprocated in some time. But there's a fine line there, there, isn't there? Because there's a point there where you give so much and you don't receive, you burn. Yeah, so... so. Yeah, I agree, man. I think there's such a... There, there is really something about giving to the universe, and I think it's true that it comes back. But when you give to the point of exhaustion, I, I think that's... I think that's kind of on you. I think if you're exhausting yourself... You can't blame the world for that because that is um, that's your choice. And I, 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 I think there is this thing about I think you can only really do a couple of things really well at a time. I don't think you can have 12 projects that you're doing excellently at a time. And that's hard for some of us artists who want to do everything, right? We have and entrepreneurs and everybody's like, I want to do this and this. You know, a friend of mine says you can have, you can have it all, just not all right now. You know, you have to decide what you're going to focus on right now. And that is hard. I mean, when, you know, one of the things I always say to artists is like, you're allowed to have three goals in your plan. You can't have 12 goals. You might have 12 goals eventually, but right now there's three. And the three that are most important, those are what you're going to focus on. That's what you're going to focus on. That 99% of your plan, when you make a plan, is like what you're not going to focus on, what you're going to push away to the side, what you're not going to do. It's People think of a plan is, I'm going to do this and this and this. It's like, no, most of it is taking stuff off your plate to clear the way so you can actually do the small, small number of things that you can really do at one time. I totally agree with that. I think, you know, but that's a challenge, isn't it? So how do you, what's been your process for identifying what other small tasks or or if you're going to narrow down from 12 items to three or whatever it is, what's your process on how to do that? How do you discern which which is actually important versus which appears to be important. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, like writing it down, I mean, it's, it's basic like planning exercise. Like I think you write it down and you do the big brainstorm with everything. Like, you really write down everything, you know, and I, I always talk about like personal, professional and artistic creative because a lot for a lot of artists, like career and creative become really the same thing. They have all these professional goals, but their goals around their actual practice and their work kind of become blurred in there. So what are your, what are the goals around your work, around your practice, around new skills, around time in the studio? I think if you do the big brain dump about all that and then go away for a while, when you come back, in my experience, it's usually pretty clear which ones feel the most important and the most impactful. And there might be, oh, I got four of them. I need to jump one away. But it's not, um, in my experience, if you really give it some time to sort of settle I think most people know what feels most important in the moment. Mm. And that's how I do it. And I'm actually, I'm needing to do it right now. Like, as I'm talking about this, I'm like, right now, I'm, on, I'm right on the edge of taking on too much stuff. And I got to like, sit down and, <laughs> <laughs> or it's going to take over. So, gotta keep but, on. You, 
Yeah. So what, what I take from you and what I'm observing is you have a certain level of self-awareness where you have arrived at understanding where your boundary is and where you're on the brink of, you know, taking on too much. So I think that, you know, have you always had that or when did you, or like, how did you harness that? Because I guess for, for you've been in it for 20, you know, whatever number of years now, a few decades. But then what about the artists who are just starting out? They're in school now, they're in, they're in art school, they're in, you know, dance studios and, and they just starting to embark on their careers, right? Yeah. So, you know, looking back, if you were to meet Andrew of 30 years ago, right, what kind of advice, you know, what, what like, you know, say three things would you say to that, to that Andrew, that version of you, to say, hey, okay, you know, you really need to focus on these three, three things to, to have a sustainable career, to do more of, of creating the art that you're here to create? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, to me, that was, that's a lot of what my work in Artists You came out of in the book, too, was sort of like, what, what would I go back and tell, my, tell myself, or what do I wish I'd read? Like, what's the book I wish someone had handed me, you know, 20, 25 years ago or something? You know, and I was, I was the crazy 23-year-old, work all the time, stay up all night, do the thing, go to the job, go to rehearsal. I mean, I was that crazy manic young artist. And, and I think I would say, if, if you are that young artist, great. Know that that's not going to last forever. And that's not the model. I think it's a long, there's a long arc to an artistic career. And I think we tend to not see that. And I would say, you know, our, we used to always say in headlong, I think it comes from baseball, right? Baseball, they play... In America, they play like 160 games or something, right? It's a huge number of games. So in baseball, it's like, it's a long season. Like, you know, you strike out, don't do good. It's a long season. You're going to get a lot more chances. And we would always say that. We'd be like, it's a long season. This is just the beginning. And I would say that because I think there's sometimes there's a drive to artists who are like, I want to make it, which I don't think happens. I don't think there's such a thing in the art world as making it. I think you can build a platform for your work and you can find partnerships and you can find support. Even the artists that, you know, I've worked with so many different artists all over the country and some all over the world too. And it's like every level of success, they all have the same thought, which is like, God, I wish I had that person's career. And I'm like, well, I've met that person and that person's saying this exact same thing. You know, everyone's like, I wish I had someone else's career. Like, you know, you, you're gonna build the artistic life that, that you need. So I, I would say that, like, it's a long season and I wouldn't wait to be saved or discovered. I would just make your life and your world the way you make your art, like with total freedom and permission, with permission to borrow from the structures that are around. Maybe you want to participate in this part of the art world. Maybe you want to build your own thing over here that has nothing to do with it. Of course, you know, a lot of times when artists go about doing that, then the art world gets really curious and interested. Like that's actually a moment that gives rise to a lot of attention. And that was kind of how we did it. We were sort of like, ah, oh, there's some parts of the dance world we like, we're going to dig. But things we don't like, we're just going to build our own thing over here because we don't need to deal with that crap. <laughs> and, of course, that's, that attitude is what artists are like in the studio, right? They're incredibly resourceful, creative, problem-solving people. But they don't, we don't always use it on other parts of our lives. Other parts of life are like, when is the art world going to discover me? When am I, is the gallery going to discover me? When is New York going to discover me? And I think that that just doesn't happen. I don't think people get discovered. I think they build build their lives and their platform and their creative world to, to really sustain them. I like that. I, I like. I guess if I was to distill that down to you know understand that you say it's a long game or a long. It, it's not a you know which is counter. I guess where society is going in terms of everything nowadays is you know instant gratification it's all about you know quick wins and and you know get rich quick and, and all that stuff that we hear all the time and then it really messes with our minds <laughs> because we kind of feel like oh yeah you know that guy hit success and you know and i like to say you know anyone who was an instant success you know usually it took them about 10 years to get there and we don't see that side of the picture necessarily right so i think that's a very valid point that you raise uh and then the other side of that is you talk about taking or accessing resources that are available to you uh, and then it's kind of like mix and matching with, you know, okay, these things will work for me and then these things I will, you know, create my own or, or I'll, you know, find a, a, a better way to improve it. And I think that's 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 really valuable. And and it's okay to do that, I think. I think, it's, you know, we can get caught in that we have to – because the institution or the studio says we need to do it this way, therefore we must follow it, you know, to the T and that's – 
that's completely against, I guess, our creative being, which is to say, well, no, you know, you know, like we are radical. We are, we are, you know, we, we do have. It's that being on that edge, I think, that makes us unique and significant and 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 valuable. Okay, now how do you how do you like when you started out and you know when you first started with the dance school or whatever? How did you decide that that's what you're going to do, and then that it would actually be profitable? Because I think that's 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 a question there. Something I get from artists is you know, um, I for example, I have a friend who's a painter and he paints a lot of you know different landscapes and whatnot. But he hasn't quite worked out. Okay, where is the market for that artwork? You know, and so the decision is: Do I continue doing this, or do I switch over to doing, you know, Photoshop and and other things which seem to be more popular these days, but also highly competitive? So, where's the decision there? Like, what type of dancers did you guys choose to start with, and, and how did you know that was going to work versus you know going with something that was really trending during that time? Well, I think. The, the advantage of being in, in contemporary dance is there's really no economy of any kind. So there's really very little opportunity to, um, to sell out or make a profit. Like there's very few people being like, well, if you just did it like this, you'd make money. There's sort of no economy. And so we have the advantage of not, not having a lot of pressures on our work to change them. The pressure is that how can you make it sustainable for yourself? And that's, that to me is always the question. I mean, I think you, we always feel like, don't make art for the market, make a market for your art, like find and create a market for the work that you make and that you're good at. I think when artists try to second guess the market and try to fit in and fake their way through it, I don't see that working out well financially or artistically very much. So I would say, how can you create a market for your work? Very few people are like, God, I really need to see some experimental dance. Like, where am I going to see that? Right. People aren't waking up wondering how to get experimental dance. So we begin by saying, like, how are we going to make this relevant to people? How do we make people in Philadelphia care about this? Because we do. We think it's we think it's hugely useful and relevant to people's lives. But we think this is this helps you understand the world, helps you understand your body. So that's kind of where we started, and that's how we built it. We did a lot of free performances. We let people get close to the work. We told them about the work and showed it to them in progress. And all of that kind of created it created demand where there was none. And along the way, we worked all kinds of day jobs and gradually we worked less day jobs and more for our company. And then eventually we could work fully for our company. But always we were figuring it out every year. I mean, there was no like, great, we're done. Awesome. We, we fixed it. Every year you got to figure out the financial picture. Well, this year we got a bunch of touring. That's great. Oh, next year now we're not getting touring because we went last year and those people don't want us again. Right? So every year we kind of pieced it together. What we did eventually, one thing we started was a training program for college students. So I don't know if this is directly applicable to your friend, but one of the things that helped me was saying, all right, there's the things I like to do, the things I'm good at, but then there's the things that the world actually pays a lot of money for, right? And where does the, those circles overlap? <laughs> what, do I, what do I care about doing that the world pays a lot of money for? And we, in my company, we love teaching, we love working with young artists. But generally speaking, like a, an artist will pay you $15 for a dance class, right? And maybe $100 for a workshop. Very little money. But people will pay a lot of money for a college credit, right? For a university credit. So if you're, get, if you're able to teach that work as university credit, then all of a sudden it's worth thousands of dollars. Um, so that's what we did. We got our program accredited by a college, and then people paid college tuition to come work with us, and we got college credit. And again, to me, that was the mindset not of like, how do we fit ourselves into the market, but rather how do we create a market for what we care about doing and particularly a market where people are willing to pay a lot of money? I'm visualizing that, that, that graphic uh, or the, the, the intersection the between yeah, the Venn diagram because I've seen that before and I think that's, that's – is that in the book? I think that, that's really a yeah. really cool diagram. Yeah. Um, what came up for me was, okay, I, I'm very curious how that, that initial discussion went with, when you went and you approached the college you know, in terms of, this is completely something I guess they hadn't seen before, right? You're talking about experimental dance. And so how were you able, like, how did those conversations, were there a series of meetings that went on or how did it, how did, what was the, I guess the, the tipping point where they decided actually, this would actually work and would be valuable for our students? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that, we started off by being like, we need a partner, right? And I think that's a big journey to me for artists is going from being sort of a beggar to being a partner. <laughs> like you're not a beggar. 
People supporting artists is not charity. It's not giving to a needy person. That is paying a highly trained professional to do cultural research, right? That is like hiring a, a cancer researcher. So you're not a beggar, you're a partner. And I think we looked around, what are possible colleges that might be interested in us that seems like there's a good fit, right? That's a the phrase, a good fit is a phrase I got told tons when people were rejecting me, you know, like, you're not a good fit for our festival this year, or you're not a good fit for our foundation. And then I was like, I'm going to start using that. Just be like, hey, is this a good fit? Because <laughs> it's true. Like, is partnership? <laughs> so we started with those conversations and talking to faculty members. And the big place where I think we got traction was it really fit with the mission of certain colleges. And so there are actually two that we ended up going pretty far with and getting to the point where they would have done the agreement with us. Because we really fit their mission around liberal arts, around creating these engaged artist citizens giving students an embodied experience of living in a city around professional artists, being part of a real live professional community, not just studying it academically. And that mission alignment was, I think, really where we, um, we could talk to the faculty members and the deans and the president of the college, and all of them understood that mission fit. Even if they were like, they don't know dance, they don't know what really what we're going to do. <laughs> but when we talk about it in the mission terms, there's a total fit. And that, to me, is like, Leading with your mission is so important, I think, for artists. Because so many artists, I think we're all totally driven by mission. I think we do this because there's a thing we want to give. There's a thing we want to offer. But I think too many of us get tricked into being career-driven. We're, we're driven by, like, trying to achieve markers of success. And nobody cares about your career. Like, no one. I mean, maybe you're, like, significant other. But no one cares <laughs> if you get a successful career. But people really care about your mission. And so when we would talk about that, we found language that wasn't specific to dance. It was really about creating formed, thoughtful, critical citizens. And that's what we do in our work. And that completely fits with the mission of a liberal arts college. So that's sort of how those conversations move forward. That's so critical. I'm, I'm glad that that came up because I think that answers the question, how do you talk to potential partners? How do you talk to, you know, it's not about... Your, your, your specific discipline. It's not about the, the, the technique you're applying, you know, in your brush strokes or the specific um, music you're using in, in your dance. It, it, it's really, you know, that's very sort of granular, granular level. And what you're saying is actually the way we connect as humans is really on mission. It's really on, you know, why are we all doing this stuff, you know? And, and that's, that's so powerful. That's something I say a lot to the people I work with. So when did you, I guess, get clarity or how did you arrive at your mission? Because I think that's a process, you know, some people wake up with it, <laughs> which I'm really envious of. But then there are other people like myself who would take 20 years to get to, you know, to a place where I realize, oh, that's why I'm doing this stuff. You know, how can we, uh, how could someone listening to this work on that and, and really get clarity around what it is that, that drives them? I mean, I, it, it's completely been, for me, it's been a real process of discovery. And there are certain key moments that Clarified things. Having kids was one, actually. I have two two uh, sons. And when we first had our, our first son, that was a moment both where the challenges and pressures of having an artistic life, you know, became tripled because now it's also raising a child and trying to figure all that out. And I really had to prioritize. I really had to be like, okay, I can't do everything. So what matters? But I also think it um, it took some of the ego out of what I was doing. And I don't think ego is all bad for artists. I think some of that actually pushes the work. But it went from being like, I want to put my work out in the world to, oh, I want more good art out in the world. And some of that can be mine, but a lot of that can be from other people. And actually, I'm probably going to have a lot more impact if I keep making my work, but also help support other artists to get to their work. And then it actually kind of even deepened beyond art. Like I do love art and culture, but it's not, it's not the only thing I care about. Or I should say, to me, choreography is a set of tactics to get at a mission. And I could also get at that mission through activism, through documentary film, through writing. And the mission, I'm really interested in systems, like both big systems, like economic systems, but also like in a performance or a piece of choreography, like systems and forms and structures. And what happens when a really, when the complicated, messy human beings, the complicated bodies meet a system, right? When you have a system that's supposed to deal with people, and then you have actual people encountering it, 
that's kind of what I care about. And that's what I care about in my art. It's kind of what I care about in my social activism. And, and that was a slow process of revealing, you know, and sometimes it was like things that people said, there was a this corporate collaborator who still, I worked with on one project and we were talking about something and she just said, she said, Oh yeah, well, that's because it's intimacy. That, all you really care about is intimacy. And I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I've never realized that. Like all of my performances was about like getting really close, mm. like both really close, but also kind of, you know, on a human level close. So all of those things helped. I, I do think, sometimes I think like, okay, what if the whole world embraced your work, whatever you make, paintings, writing, and if the whole world embraced it, loved it, just like taught it in the schools, cared about it. Like what would happen? How would the world be different? That to me is a little bit what your mission is. Like if everyone in the world just totally grooved on what you were doing and, and sang it from the rooftops, what would be different about the world? You know? And a lot of times that's things that are, that are simple. There are things like people would, they would listen more or, you know, people would, um, People would pay more attention. People would embrace difference. Like these sort of not particularly like postmodern subtle ideas. Like they're very human ideas. To me, that's a way to find mission. You know, what if everything you that you put out in the world was embraced, how would it affect people? I want to, the first thing I want to say to that is I think that that can drive a lot of fear for certain people. Mm. That, that that idea of as an artist, uh, at least in my experience, we are great at being perfectionists <laughs> and getting caught in. Is this good enough to release it? Is it good enough to go to public? Uh, you know, right? Because I'm going to get where I get judged on it. But I find, I mean, I'm sure you, you have experience with this. Is the harshest critic is always going to be the artist themselves. And so, how do you, you know, I mean, I love the the concept. I love the the idea of going outside of yourself and then exploring. Okay, what is the impact of my work? And let's say, you know, we're at the end of your career or end of your life and you look back and you go, okay, I spent 50 years creating, you know, choreography or dance or movement or whatever it is, you know, uh, symphonies, you know, or, or I, designed, I designed, you know, some of the biggest or, or the most craziest bridges across the world, right, whatever it is. So how do you deal with or manage that fear that comes up that says, you know, that part of us that goes, maybe I'm not good enough to be that person. Maybe I'm not, you know, I'm not a Monet, I'm not a Picasso, I'm not a whatever, right? So how have you been able to resolve that within yourself? And actually, because you do work with a lot of other artists, how do you help them work through that? I mean, one, I guess my first thought I had when you said that was just that the more it can really be focused on the work and not on you, that, that it's not, your work is not some reflection of you or some um, verdict on your, your worth. It really is kind of the work, like it's it's the artwork itself, and that, and I don't mean that like distance yourself and don't care about it, but I do think that the more you're, the more you make work to prove something about being worthy, the worse it's going to be. And we talk about this with performers all the time, right? Because as soon as you come out on stage, one thing you want is approval from the audience. Like you're just a human being. Like you want people, they don't have to cheer, but they gotta like you, right? They gotta think you're doing a good job, and that actually is. Um, that's a huge barrier to performing well. Like that doesn't, but what you don't want to do in the audience is sit there and watch someone deal with their insecurities about how you're judging them as an audience, right? That is actually a very neurotic little loop. So there is this thing where you make, you have to make friends with that. It's human. It's human to want to be loved, but not let it guide your choices. And that's what we say to our performers. Like if that, if that thought about, um, the drive for approval, if that's actually guiding your choices, your choices are not going to be the best choices for the work. And so that's when I think about that, I think like, how do I, how do I let go of my desire to be congratulated <laughs> and focus on the work? And of course, ironically, or whatever, unsurprisingly, the more you do that, the more often congratulations you get, because the more that you actually allow the work to lead, the stronger it will be and the more that people will respond. But I also, I think people, um, I think the whole desire to be a famous artist is very different from the desire to make stuff. And I think the desire to make stuff is way more important. And it's kind of unique to artists. I mean, artists, the artists I know, they just can't stop. They can't stop making stuff. And they will always make stuff. 
And that is a great human, beautiful drive. The desire to be congratulated is also very human, but it's not a, I don't think it actually leads anywhere interesting in that way. I think the, the real approval you need, the love you need, it's never going to come from an audience or a buyer or a critic, right? It's going to come from the people you're really close to. So, and I say that because you know, performers famously, as they get incredibly huge and adored by audiences, they get more neurotic about it, but not less. Like that's actually an unanswerable, that's a need that can't be answered by strangers. It can only be answered by the people you love. So don't put that on strangers, you know, let, let strangers watch your heart. Don't, don't, don't expect them to love you and congratulate you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an echo of, uh, I watched an interview where Leon, Leonardo DiCaprio, he had, you know, he had directed, what was that, that the film about uh, Great Gatsby. Um, and then they asked him about, because that was, I think, his, maybe that was his directorial de- debut or, or whatever it was, but he, they asked him, okay, so now you've done that and you've produced that, you've created this, and it's going, you know, it's release date, it's going out now. So how do you feel about what the audiences will say? And he basically mirrored what you just said now. He said, you know, my role is to create the work. Once I've created it, you know, when it goes out, I can't control what millions of people are going to say, you know, and to sit there and absorb it and take the, the good and the bad and, and look at the tweets and worry about, you know, reviewers and critics. You can go insane, like literally go nuts with that and end up in a psychiatric ward. So you're better off, you know, just uh, letting it go, as you say. And I think that that's, that's very sound advice and very timely. Andrew, I wanted to, there's a question here I got from someone within our community, an artist, and the question relates to, I guess, what they perceive as a conflict of two beliefs. One is around the belief around mastery, and you've probably heard of a 10,000-hour rule, if you want to call it that. So the question is, okay, so he, he, how do I re- reconcile between two beliefs? One is that I need to perform or create for 10,000 hours in order to master my art. And then the second belief here is one which Einstein was quoted to say, which is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is insanity. So... <laughs> how, how do I deal or, or work with those two opposing beliefs? Yeah, it's interesting. God, I think of I think of art as the perfect place to inhabit those two because it really is a place that both it rewards practice, it rewards daily practice, whatever your practice is, writing, painting, dancing, like it does. And when I say rewards, not just like gives you more gold, it actually you feel change and you grow spiritually and you deepen your connection to the work. But it also hugely rewards swerving and risk-taking and totally turbulent non-sequiturs. You know, the wonderful thing we're able to do as artists is every time we go in the studio, be like, not, oh, I'm going to make a dance now. But you can be like, well, why dance? What is dance? The body. What is the body today? What do we want it to be? Where do we want to push it? We don't, don't have all those expectations. The 10,000-hour fetish, and I followed that for a while, and I, I, that seems like a particularly neurotic 21st century way to judge people. I know people who have done things for 10,000 hours who I would never want to uh, see their work or connect to them. I know people who are brand new to the field who are making brilliant things. I, I don't think it breaks down quite so easily. I think commitment to practice is a really beautiful thing that artists get it's almost like that's one of the rewards we get is we get to commit to our practice and do it over and over and have that kind of daily weekly ritualized practice but i also think we get to throw it all away and we get to be like actually now i'm going to make a movie wait hold on no this performance happens on a telephone you know like there is no um because there's very little market-driven economy there's also very few boundaries that is a it's a gift, you know, it's such a gift. And, and I, so many people wish they had that in their lives. I completely agree. I, I, I feel like that's, um, cause I was, you know, I, I don't know how much, you know, my story, but I spent you know, a good 12 some years in, in, in the corporate world. felt like I was trapped, you know, and it's like, I'm accessing a lot of, a lot of my analytical brain, numbers and metrics and all these different things. And there's this part of me yearning to say, let's go and dance because I like to dance as well. And sing and do karaoke and do silly things or whatever it is. But there's that, uh, it goes back to we're all at the end, we're all inherent creators. We come onto the earth to create. We create babies. We create 
things. We create, you know, art. We create, um, and it's part of us that we. That's I think it's. I think it's part of the human experience, and I'm fascinated by your 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 exploration into systems and how that marries and how that that connects. Because you know, um, an argument that comes up often, I guess, in, you know, from artists is where the system, or when we talk about our economy, doesn't. That's a system, and it doesn't allow us to thrive as artists. I think that's what what really is powerful about what your message is because you're saying actually no it's it's you know you, you can play that victim game and say you know yeah you know the system's effed up and, and it doesn't work for me because i'm an artist or you can actually say actually i'm an artist within a system like you're just saying now there are no boundaries to what i do because there is no you know i create i in essence i'm creating my own system as i go yeah just could you share a little bit about about that how you know like that's so fascinating a concept to me i mean i do think that people this documentary film that i'm putting together is about the work of this guy, Mauricio Miller, who's this radical anti-poverty thinker and activist. And he, he was in the sort of social service sector for 20 years, ran a nonprofit in the Bay Area, got a lot of accolades there. You know, President Clinton gave him a plaque, you know, he's doing great. But he had a total crisis of faith and he really felt like we're actually not servicing people out of poverty. We're just keeping them kind of where they are. And he was working with the children of people he'd worked with decades before. He's like, wait a minute, these people are exactly where they were 20 years ago. So he started to look at how how do people in America actually get out of poverty? He looked at his own family. He grew up in poverty. His mother was a single mom from Mexico and brought the family out, brought him out of poverty. Um, And he started realizing that like, the solutions come from the people. That actually, if you start listening to them and asking them to solve the problems, they solve it. As opposed to the social service person coming in and being like, here's what you should do. Here's what you're doing wrong. You should go over here and do this. And he always says, like, you can't imagine the power when the person with the tie comes into the room and the fancy education and says, hey, low-income person, here's what you should do. What that does to their power. And I think the same is true for artists. I think too too often artists see the sort of economics as this world they can't understand or relate to. And then the person with the tie comes in the room, whether that's the gallerist or the curator or the critic or the funder or the the, the sort of professional development. I'm going to fix you, artist, by teaching you business skills. And that just makes them feel more and more like, oh, this is a system I can't understand and relate to. Instead of treating it like your studio, which is like, oh, this is a world... I get to interact with on my own terms. I get to steal things that I like from the system. I get to build new things when I don't like the system. That kind of creativity, I really see that identically in low-income communities and in artists. I both see the, the incredible ingenuity, the incredible hard work, but I also see the disempowerment that happens when the like professional people walk in and start telling everybody what to do. <laughs> so I think a lot about that. I think about how we build them. The systems we built in the art world it's really hard to get the incentives right to support artists. There's a lot of incentives around supporting institutions and supporting salary lines for arts professionals. There's not a lot of incentives to support artists. Right. So that's why I think artists just have, we have to look around and be like, I'm going to be as creative in this as I am in my studio. Like I'm going to be as resourceful, as connected to my community and collaborative. I'm going to see value where other people don't see it. And I'm just not going to assume that because you have a tie on, you understand more than I. That's a really that's a really great distinction because on the other side of that that person in the suit or whatever you know there's a lot of assumptions and and it works both ways you assume one way you know about that person and the other person assumes stuff about you and um, I think the opportunity that that's available to us is to have real conversations around that and and, and ask great questions around okay how do we support you know, each other to grow and and the the sharing you had you had there about impoverished neighborhoods and then people working in those communities. I interviewed a guy who does development work not too long ago, and that's exactly the same thing he said. He said, you know, the reason why he feels a lot of aid, foreign aid, doesn't work, more in his experience, because he did a lot of work in that, that area, is because you have this assumption that you can bring an external consultant or someone from the outside into a community and they can fix problems because they have they've, they've done their you know, analysis they've done the numbers they've done all these things but what he's found was once you work from within and you actually allow the community to to you know they have the answers they will actually tell you if you ask some questions they will tell you this is what needs to be done 
our role is just to listen and then connect them to those resources, which is you know basically what you're saying, and I think that's so so powerful. Okay, I'm conscious of time. I really, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Uh, I, I want to ask you, Andrew. I guess um, two two final questions. First one is around okay, as an artist, as as a creator, a performer, how 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 do you advise people who struggle with selling their themselves? Right, this whole thing around how do I, you know, I don't want to be. It's not about me. It's about my art. I just want, but I don't want people to know that I'm here. I'm just gonna. That's my art. And in a world where personal branding is becoming, you know, commonplace, uh, how how do you how how would what advice would you give to to artists in that scenario? Well, I'm completely one of those artists, and I I always have been, um, yeah, I've always been felt confused and disheartened by the idea of marketing my work. You know, I, I hate the word brand and I don't allow people in, in my little artists program to use the word branding because I think it is a really, there's a degree of commercialism there that I think is just not true about artists. I think artists have, they have reputations and they have missions and they have communities. But I think to say that they have brands is, is really bending the reality. You know, I, I would say again, I think if you lead with the mission, I mean, I think if you start with What's the overlap between this organization or this person and what I do? And particularly on a mission level, like why do they care about what I care about? That's often a great place to start because it's not saying my dances are great, my paintings are great. It's saying, you know, we, we're really all interested in urbanism and what's happening in the city and how bodies move through space. Let's talk about that. Um, I think that helps. I also think practicing helps. And I know this sounds silly, but, you know, we always said, a minute on stage, you need a minimum of three hours of rehearsal. So practice how you talk about your work. When someone says, hey, what are you, what are you doing? Or what's your work like? Tell me about your art. There's nothing noble or cool about being like, oh, I don't know. I just make a bunch of stuff like that. All that is is, is, is kind of telling the person no, not letting them get close. You, should, you can practice how you talk about your work. And you can find language that you like. Whenever we work in Artists U on either writing or speaking, I always say like, you should really like your artist statement. You should really like your, you know, the way you talk about your work. Like, you should love it. <laughs> you should love it as much as you love your work. And I think that's important because people have this idea that they need to um, become something else. They need to turn from the person they are into a marketing person. And I really think every, every communication about your work should feel like you're becoming more yourself, becoming more who you actually are. Both because I think it makes the communication better, but also because you don't want to. You don't want to spend your life slipping into two the Jekyll and Hyde of like, here's my actual work, and then I'm going to turn around here and market it and sell it all the time. I think you want to stay. You want to as much as possible be authentic whenever you can, in whatever ways you can, authentic to what matters to you. And then you also can have other people do it for you. I mean, frankly, it's not. You don't have to do it all. Hire someone. Have a partner. Have an advisory board. A lot of artists have an informal advisory board of people who meet. You know every few months just to talk about the projects and the work and to help move it forward. Those people are great advocates for your work. Um, and when you find advocates and, you know, I, I always tell people in, in my company's 20 years, we had five big advocates, like five people in the dance world, important people who loved us. Those five people gave us more than half of our opportunities, either directly or indirectly by connecting us to stuff. So when you find someone who's an advocate, like, Partner with them. Work, tell them what you're working on. Stay in touch with them. Let them know what's going on. Let them advocate for you because they don't know. They don't know what you're doing. They have no idea what you're working on. That curator who presented you three years ago, we think like people are always thinking about us, but no one's ever thinking about you. Like you can't imagine how rarely people are thinking about you. They're never. <laughs> so call them up. Hey, I'm just so you know, I got this project I'm working on, blah, blah, blah. Then next week, she's going to be talking to someone else and be like, oh, you should call Andrew because he's working on, you know, like all those connections will start to happen. And I just say that because you don't have to be out on the street approaching strangers and selling your work to, to be effective at finding partners. You can let other people do that for you. Beautiful, beautiful. That's a great response. Okay, final question. Okay, when it's all said and done, okay, what do you want to be known for? I mean, first and foremost, like loving husband, father, friend, member of my community, then way, then a huge gap, and then way farther down. <laughs> That's the really important stuff. 
And I do mean that. I, I know there are a lot of artists who art comes first, and it, that's not true for me. Definitely not. People come first, for sure. I do, you know, it's something, something about, like, advocating for the crazy, messy things that we actually are in the midst of all these systems that we have to function over. And I love systems, and I'm fascinated by systems, and I love tweaking them. But I also, I also want us not to confuse the system with what it means to live, what it means to be a person, and what it means to be the really existentially complicated, messy, sloppy, overflowing thing that a human being is. Which I think, in my life, I've seen getting squeezed out slowly in favor of um, kind of productivity and and mass identity mass ideas about we should all be like this so yeah there's something about that and to me that that messiness is what i'll always want to keep alive in whatever i'm doing writing dancing living. beautiful uh, i'm just yeah i'm just feeling that that to be messy is to be human and and we're not machines uh, we're not computers we created computers because that's their function and, and you know let's not let's not turn us into so beautiful thanks so much for your time andrew how can people connect to you and, and, and access the, get the book and, and follow your work yeah artistu.org uh, which is right here um you can download the book for free it's also a lovely little paperback that fits in your pocket yeah and i'm working on a sort of follow-up book that's actually for a bigger readership called work like an artist that's sort of about lessons in work and meaningfulness that i've learned from artists that i don't i think everyone could make use of Amazing. Looking forward to that. Do you have a projected release date? When when this happening? Still looking for talking to publishers and people about actually putting it out. So I have no idea yeah. that timeline is a mystery to me. Awesome. All right. Cool. We'll we'll look forward to that with bated breath. And uh, yeah, I definitely if anyone watching and reading or listening to this, highly encourage you to check out what's on on Andrew's site. It's, it's incredible. Thanks a lot again for your time. Really, really value your input. And, and um, so talking. I really, yeah, man. all of your thoughts. I'm really just feeling it, feeling you right now. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I could connect. I think uh, I felt that from just, just the words. And it's interesting. You, you read something on a, someone's page and you go, okay, I need to talk to that person. And <laughs> that, that's what came out of that. So, and also all the uh, you know people who, who are, I've shared that work with have said, you know, tell Andrew they, they love it. A lot of love coming your way, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, everyone. So, um, yep, definitely go to Andrew's site, which is, again, on the bottom of the screen here, artistu.org. Check in with him. He's on Twitter. He's on various social media. And also subscribe to Confidentpreneur if you want to tune in and listen to more interesting and crazy conversations. Thank you. So there you have it, Warriors. Thank you for tuning in to Andrew Seminette and learning all about making your life as an artist. If you want to access the links uh, to Andrew's book as well as to his website, just head over to www.transitionspodcast.com forward slash 006. Once again, that's transitionspodcast.com forward slash 006 and you'll be able to access those goodies and if you really got some value from this episode and learned a few things please share this podcast with your friends and network hit subscribe and also if you can spend a couple of minutes just to leave a review on itunes just to let me know how these podcasts are for you that would be amazing because that would help us even help more people out there who are trying to do what we're all trying to do which is live a great life so once again live confidently and passionately and we'll tune in next time Wow.